You are listening to the Fellowship Church of Burbank Weekly Sermon Podcast. You can find more information about the church as well as hear more messages from Pastor Robbie Pitt at www.fellowshipchurchofburbank.com. Some of you in here are followers of Jesus and have trusted him probably for a very long time, and I assume some of you are probably not. Maybe you're exploring who he is um, and what he's about, and this is a great series um, to be here to learn about that as we enter um, into Christmas Day almost, as we've been a part of the season And I was given the topic of love, which uh, may seem like something very distant in a time like um, what happened to the uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School. Um, But I'm hoping that uh, regardless of who you are, you'll be um, touched and moved as we look into the ancient words of Scripture and what it says about God's love as we just uh, had a chance to sing. And that little little, uh, one in the red with the saying all the words and stuff, that was, that was mine, uh, in case you were wondering, so my daughter. Um, uh, but in some older churches, they actually do this uh, in different ways, some uh, liturgical type things, um, but that sometimes they read the scripture they're going to go over beforehand, and then they say after it, this is the word of the Lord, as a way to express the solemnness of how holy a time is to go into something. So I'm going to actually do that this morning. If you have a Bible, feel free to turn to First John, it's towards the back of the Bible before um, just a few books from the back. Um, we're going to be in 1 John 4, 7 through 12. It'll be up on the screen, I believe, for you too, if you don't have one. So, um, But I'll go ahead and read, uh, and then we'll pray. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we enter in um, with a chance to see your word and hear these ancient words of the Apostle John. Um, And Lord, I know I need to see it afresh what your love is, and I believe every one of us in here needs that, whether we follow you or whether we don't. So I pray you'd really open our eyes now um, as we dig into it, and you'd help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so love, I mean, it's one of those things that's almost like air, right? We all pretty much know it exists, and we assume it in a lot of ways, but it's really, when you think about it, really think, it's hard to grasp and define what it is. Um, The majority of our songs are about love when you listen to them on the radio. Uh, Most of the stories you probably see on TV or in movies in some way are related to love or wanting it or lack of it, trying to find it. Um, There's a general acceptance in our culture uh, that we're all looking for one true love. Um, (laughs) You see all the like uh, 
ads on TV now, Christian Mingle, eHarmony, and it's, you got to find your perfect one. You know, it's all, I remember when the, the online services first came out, and you're like, that is freaky weird if you look for someone on the internet. Now it's like normal, isn't it, to, to have friends that are looking. Uh, but we are all looking. We kind of have this general acceptance. We're all looking for some kind of love. And if you um, have studied other languages or other cultures at times, lots of different languages and cultures have different words for love. Uh, in English, it's kind of funny. We, it's love in English is really a junk drawer term. It, it, it can mean tons of things. You can go from saying, I love pizza, to I love my wife. And if you mean the same thing by those, you're probably in trouble, at least with your wife uh, at some point. Or it's really weird relationship with pizza that you have. Um, but there are a few different types of love. Friendship love comes to mind as one of them. You know, a love that two friends share. There's nothing romantic about it, but it's a serving one another, a caring for one another, being there for your good friend that you have. There's attractional love, or what we might say is, you know, the uh, love at first sight love, where you're just awestruck by someone and you, uh, you know, might include some sort of lust or something like that. But you're drawn to a person. It's this attractional love in Greek. There's a word that kind of represents some of that in, uh, that's never appears in the New Testament, but it's called eros, and it meant that sort of attractional uh, love. There's romantic love, of course, and we probably see this uh, so often in movies and TV, longing for that one other person that's going to fulfill your needs and be that perfect person. Um, Alicia and I are really into Downton Abbey, if anyone else is. I'm not embarrassed to say that. That show is awesome. It's really good, Okay. Uh, but there's this whole theme that goes, it's a periodic drama set back in England in the 1910s uh, uh, and 20s. Uh, and there's this whole like long dra- uh, drama between an heiress who needs to find a potential um, uh, mate or else you can't inherit the estate. And this, uh, this guy, Matthew, is the one that he's trying, they're trying to get to. You know they're going to end up together, but there's all this drama, and you're just longing for when are they going to get together. If you saw last season, finally, at the very end, hopefully I didn't spoil it, uh, something happens and they get together. So it's good stuff. There's a lot in there, but, but there's, we know there's some part of us that's meant to be known and to be loved uh, by someone else, to have a companion in our lives. Parental love is another type. It might be one that we've come to think about these last couple days a little more. Um, if you're a parent, it probably didn't take you more than a millisecond to hear the news about what happened in Connecticut and be struck deep in your heart uh, because you can easily think of your own child. If you watch the president's uh, speech or statements on what happened on Friday, he, he, as he was describing it, broke down at some parts and couldn't continue, literally had to pause for about 10 seconds as he was describing what happened and described his own uh, little girls. And you, you, you could see in him, and, and it, it doesn't take long if you have a child to know what that must feel like to an extent. So there's something powerful about um, parental love as well. And it's one of those loves that you can't, of course, you, you know this. I knew this before I had a child um, in my head, but you can't really know until you have a child what that type of love is, but it's distinct. And then there's probably a love that's a greater love for the community, a greater good. Um, it's a serving and caring for your neighbors, caring for people that uh, may be like you or might not be. The golden rule might be a way that we uh, say that. Um, but when we think about what happened on Friday, you probably think it's the antithesis of 
the greater good love. It is the opposite of seeking good for your neighbor um, is. It's the shooter failed miserably at it. But at the same time in that we, you may have been reading some of the stories, as, as Robbie said, it's so hard to, but some of the stories are people saving and protecting those kids. There were some marvelous stories, one of the younger teachers, and that's a, that's a greater good love. It's a sacrificial love. It's not a parent, it's not a romantic love, but it's, um, it's something different. And you now even see schools and families in our country, in a sense, rallying behind as best we can those families to care for them. It's a community love. But when you think about all those different types of love, there's probably more that I couldn't think of, but in its purest form, maybe even whatever type of love really you know, attaches to you, maybe it's romantic, maybe it's parental, isn't there a part of us that goes, yes, that's what, that's what we want. That's, that's what we, we need. That's what we're made for at some point. I think that's true whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. We know in some sense there's something about love in all its forms that we were made to know. And on the opposite end, when we see something like what happened at Sandy Hook Elementary, we know that's not love. There's something deep in us that goes, that is supremely unloving. And we know, in, in, in saying something like that, you know there's a responsibility we have. There's a responsibility that shooter had to love others, and they didn't, and they took instead of gave. And so we cry out for justice in a sense. We know when love is betrayed, something should be done about that. But then we go back to what I said in the beginning. When you think about love still, how do you define it? It's really hard to grasp. We all know we need it. We all know we long for it. But what is it? One of the greatest problems in our world today is we we live in a culture in a lot of ways that doesn't want to believe that something outside of physical or scientific truth, that there is spiritual truth that is one way or absolutely true. But when you lose absolute truth in a spiritual realm, you actually lose any sort of foundation for what love actually is. So I'll do the uh, standard uh, dictionary thing and pulled up Webster's dictionary to say, oh, what does Webster say? Um, one of the things it says is love is an intense feeling of deep affection. Another one, a deep romantic or sexual att- attachment to someone. That's the attractional love I talked about. And then another definition is a score of zero. Um, that's in tennis, though, so that might be, that might not be what we're getting at uh, here, but but when you look at that, look at those first two, especially intent, an intense feeling that doesn't really what intense. I feel all sorts of intense feelings at all sorts of times. That doesn't really help us. Deep affections, okay, I have deep affections, but where is the foundation? Where? How do we know what love really is? Um, one of the interesting uh, experiments in this, or experiments, experiences I had with a definition of love came. Last year, when I was at the University of Arizona working there for five years with one of the Christian organizations on campus, we had the pleasure of being a part of a great group called the Veritas Forum. And the Veritas Forum, Veritas means truth in Latin. The Veritas Forum puts on forums around different universities around the country and has different speakers talk on the most relevant issues of our day, especially relating to truth and spiritual truth and how 
uh, Jesus Christ intersects with those things. Last year, we had the pleasure of putting on a forum with uh, two mathematicians, which sounds incredibly boring. But the topic was, is science enough uh, thinking deeply about the meaning of life? And so you had one mathematician who was a um, Satyan Devadas, who you'll see, he'll be on the left in this video, um, is a Christian professor, a mathematician. And then the guy on the right, Dr. McCallum, um, is actually a professor from the University of Arizona um, and an atheist professor. And at the end of it, they gave two presentations, did the dialogue together. At the end of it, lots of questions were asked um, from the audience. And so there's some participation and dialogue. Dr. McCallum was really candid, great guy, the atheist professor. Uh, but one of the things he said is, how does he know there's meaning in life? He said, because of love. And one of the questions came in from text message, and you'll hear my voice read the question because I was running everything in the back in a way, uh, helping run everything. So if you hear, you're like, that voice sounds familiar, it's me. Um, but one of the questions came in is, what is your definition of love? And so I want to show you from an atheist perspective, here's, here's, what, he, here's what happened during that. Slide is for Dr. McCallum again. What, you mentioned love. What is your definition of love? Keep it all right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was... <laughs> Yeah, okay, can't talk about that. Um, yeah, you know what? I don't think I have a definition of love. Um, like, not a mathematical definition, anyway. Um, I guess I assume that most people know what I mean when I'm talking about love. Uh, at I could send you the link later if you want to see the rest. He goes on to kind of fumble around for a while. But it's just amazing. One of the things I loved about Dr. McCollum was he would, he's really candid. I mean, one of the most honest, really kind men. But you see there, he goes, he, fumble, he fumbles around. One of his main answers towards meaning in life was, I know there's meaning in life because I know there's love. And then he's asked and he goes, he, he's grasping at straws because there's no foundation that he has to know what love actually is. And I was a biology major in college, and so if you, you know, have taken any real science classes, one of the things, if you're a strict, um, uh, uh, non-deist non uh, scientist, you say, that, you know, love actually comes down to just chemical and physical reactions, physiological reactions in your body. Um, and so all those things you feel and long for are just your chemicals, you know, dancing around inside of you, really inspiring stuff. But we know there's something more to it, don't we? We know there's something more. Well, as we dive back into 1 John here, the Apostle John actually says something incredibly revolutionary. For our culture, just as provocative as it was back then. He says there is an unshakable foundation to know what love is. And he says that one of the shortest, most profound statements ever, God is love. So let's take a look at what the Apostle says. First, just quickly a little background of 1 John. One of the things you need to do before you dive into any book in Scripture, if you've never read uh, the Bible, is to understand a little bit about what's going on. Um, the Apostle John is, uh, this is probably written, you know, 40 years or so uh, after Jesus uh, went to the cross and died after his ministry. Uh, John was one of the original 12 apostles. Uh, he was most likely the one called the beloved disciple. Uh, in the Gospel of John, if you've seen that. He wrote uh, second to um, the Apostle uh, Paul. He wrote the second most books in the New Testament. 
Um, he's the one that wrote that wacky book uh, at the end of the Bible called Revelation. It's trippy stuff if you read it. Um, he, Jesus actually said on the cross, he asked John to take care of his mother, Mary. And so John is overly qualified to be able to speak on these issues. He was probably writing to a large group of non-Jewish Christians um, outside of Jerusalem. Um, the whole book has lots of themes on how you can know the assurance of God's finished work and what he's accomplished on the cross. And we kind of jump into, in the middle here, uh, a section on how can you know you're a real follower of Jesus. And he has this big section on love, and that's where we're jumping into. And as we jump into this, this is an important thing for, that I learned as I jumped into, as you read any scripture, scripture is in two very broad categories. There's lots of ways you can you know, break up um, scripture, but this is one of the ways. Things we must do and things that have been done. Or another way to say it is commands and promises. Or another way would be law and gospel. If you get those two categories mixed up, things we must do versus things that have been done, you end up with some of the worst distortions of Christianity. In fact, I think that's one of the main reasons people reject Christianity today, because all they see is things we must do, commands, and law, and they've never seen the wonder of what's been done, the wonder of what's been given, the wonder of what has happened. So let's look. The first thing I said we see in this is God is love. What does that mean when John says God is love? Notice it didn't say, as you look up there, doesn't say God is loving, but that God is love. At the very least, this must mean at the heart, at the very nature and heart of God is that he is love, that love defines him in a sense. Um, think about how you and we describe people on a regular basis. So you might, you know, these are fictional people. I'm not using real names. But you might say something like, oh, Janet, she, she's so loving. She's such a loving, sweet, tender-hearted person. Uh, or on the negative, you might say, man, Joe, that guy is angry. He is an a he's a jerk. He is an angry guy. He's got issues. You know, we say things like that. But it, wouldn't it be really weird to say, Janet is tenderness? <laughs> wouldn't that be a strange, you know, Joe is anger? Or if you, you know, we're really strange, say, DJ, that DJ is love. You know, it's just like weird. No, it doesn't make sense. Like, it's, you know, strange. But here we have the Apostle John saying, God is love. We need, we need some help here because that is hard. Well, if you look across the rest of Scripture, you get one big story about what God is doing uh, in the world. And if you look across the rest, it says, when you look at the nature of God, one of the most incredible things is it says there's one God, one God and only one God. You see this in the Jewish scriptures. If you were to meet some, some conservative or orthodox Jews today, they would completely agree with that. But the Bible says at the same time, that one God exists eternally and forever has in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. This is profoundly mysterious here, so if this hurts your head, you are in good company with people for Christians for 2,000 years. Um, but the whole of Scripture tells us God has eternally existed, one God and three persons. The Son, Jesus, was never created. The Holy Spirit was never made. He's eternally existed, always been that way, three persons and one God. 
And this God, for all of eternity, has been love. It means he did not one day decide, I think I'll be loving now. He's always been love. Forever. (laughs) If we could go back forever, he's been that way. If we could fast forward to eternity, he will be that way. And this means that each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have been loving each other for all of eternity. Perfectly enjoying each other, perfectly serving one another, the Father loving the Son, looking at the Son, loving Him, serving Him, caring for Him, the Son reflecting back at the Father, love and goodness and care, and the Holy Spirit is all in that mix as well, loving and serving forever. This is what Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God, says. If God is unipersonal, I mean one person, then until God created other beings, there was no love, since love is something that one person has for another. This means that a unipersonal God was power, sovereignty, and greatness from all eternity, but not love. Love, then, is not the essence of God. However, if God is triune, if he's three persons, then loving relationships in community are the great fountain at the center of reality. For love to exist, there has to be community. It can't be expressed alone. So Keller continues in speaking about the Trinity. Each of the divine persons centers upon the other. None demands that the other revolves around him. None is selfish. Each voluntarily circles around the other two, pouring love, delight and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. Why does this matter for us? Why, DJ, are you getting all theological with the Trinity? Why is this a big deal? Well, why does it matter what Paul, uh, excuse me, what the Apostle John is saying? Because so many people today think the only reason God would create a world and a universe and create people is because somehow he was lonely we're like, oh, I'm so sad, I'm bored, I'm by myself, I should create people so that I can love them and tell them. No. God has perfectly been satisfied, perfectly loving for all of eternity. So that means that God didn't create us and didn't create the world out of a need for us. He created out of an overflow of love. So a fullness, a fountain that, that, that is so full, it laps over the side because it has to, because that's how much love. That's why God created us. He's never lacking in love. He is an ever-flowing, perfect source of love. Indeed, the only perfect source. Theologian Michael Horton says it this way, whenever God acts towards creatures, it's out of complete satisfaction that he already enjoys as the Trinity. The eternally begotten Son lives from the love of the Father, but the Father is such, because he has a Son, And in the Spirit, the Father and the Son not only have a third person to love, but one who loves them in return and brings sinful creatures like us into the circle of that loving fellowship. And in this eternal intra-Trinitarian, I bet you didn't think you'd wake up hearing that word today, intra-Trinitarian exchange, no one is ever let down. Think about all the times in your life you've been let down by someone else, by yourself, in God, in the other person that's right, no one's ever let down. There's perfect love going on. So God is a fountain and the only true source of love. 
Well, the second thing you see uh, in this scripture, if we go back to it, is that we have a call to love ourselves. God gives us a call. It says um, there's a reality that God, because God himself is love, we should be loving towards one another. It says, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And this piece of scripture is explicitly directed towards Christians, uh, but we could broaden it out. But this, if we're going to stay in context, is mainly about other Christians love one another. It says that in verses 7 and 8 and 11 and 12. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Our call is to love one another. And followers of Jesus, um, because God's love has been perfected in us and we've seen it, we're to love and serve one another. This is one of the command portions. This is one of the things we're to do, portions of Scripture. And notice that last line, if you remember it or if it goes back up there in verse 12, says that no one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That statement that no one's ever seen God is actually echoed throughout the Bible. It's referring to no one's ever seen God in his full, holy glory. Moses saw him in part, and John gets to see him a bit in Revelation. But no one's seen him in his full glory because we'd be just wiped out and obliterated because we're not um, worthy. But John tells us here something just unbelievable. He says, when we, if you're a follower of Jesus and you love others in community, serve one another, bless one another, seek others' good instead of your own. That holy and perfect love of God abides in us and becomes perfected. Isn't that a crazy statement? The love of God is perfected when we love one another and serve one another. I am not sure what that means, but there's something incredible about what community means. This is what a church is supposed to be. We have this profound uh, privilege to perfect the love of God amongst each other. When we're out serving each other, we're out serving others, when we're loving one another, when we're caring for one another, God himself is there and his love is perfected as it's expressed amongst us. What a crazy, stunning privilege. Can you imagine what society would be like if all the Christians loved like this towards each other and towards others? If we served others for their good, if we blessed others for their good, our whole community, imagine. But you can't get long thinking about our call to love without seeing how we failed to love and do fail. If you really know yourself as a follower of Jesus, and if I really know myself, then you, and you're really honest with yourself, um, don't we all know that we failed to love like God has called us to? Uh, don't we know that we are not who we are meant to be those verses again beloved let us love one another john says we ought to love one another he says john i think catches me as a very positive guy he's not a get in your face like negative guy he's like let's stay in the positive but just the fact that he's saying we ought to let us what does that show that shows we need encouragement <laughs> we probably don't we ought to love one another john says but we don't let us love one another because we so often fail to. This speaks to a reality that's far too easy for us to see if we think about it and we really look at ourselves, uh, that there is a corruption, there is a selfishness, there is an anti-love inside of all of us. Um, the Apostle Paul in Romans uh, chapter 3 says it this way. Um, he says it very bluntly. John, Paul's more of a blunt guy. 
quoting uh, the Old Testament, he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Another powerful way to express what this is saying is we do not love. We tend to, inside of us, do the opposite of love. It's extremely easy to see in situations like Connecticut. It's much harder to see in the nuances of your own heart that that's true. But Paul says here, no one does it as we should. This is what the Bible calls sin. Um, If you're a follower of Jesus, it's clear in Scripture that sin still lies closely at our hearts, causing us to not do good to others, causing us to love ourselves. Um, If you're not a follower of Jesus, the Bible speaks very similarly (laughs) to you, and it actually says selfishness and sin is the driving motivation at the core of our hearts and that we're actually slaves to sin and selfishness. And that's why John has to say we ought to, let us, because that wickedness still lies within us. Um, I am not old enough to remember this by firsthand experience, but the Beatles had a very famous song. Um, that said, They said, all we need is love. All we need is love, because they realized we don't love like we're supposed to, on a global scale and an individual one. And then verse 8 comes. Verse 8 says this, anyone who does not love does not know God. Now, if you know your own sin, you know your own selfishness, you know the ways that you failed in love, that verse is crushing. Crushing. Anyone who doesn't love does not know God. Devastating verse. How many times, even as a believer, I, have I not loved God as I should? Have I not loved others? Have I sought myself and my own needs every single day, if I'm truly honest? But there it is. We must love like God, but we have all failed. We must love or we don't know God, and yet we haven't loved. Jesus even told his followers to love their enemies, but often we have hated our enemies, haven't we? What are we to do? Well, I'm so thankful (laughs) that the Bible is not just this side of commands and things to do, but it is this side of what has been done and promise and gospel. Look at the verses in the middle of our section, verse 9 and 10. In this is the love of, the love of God was made manifest, that God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, Not that we got it together. Not that we were good enough. Not that we were able to. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In eternity past, God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly experiencing love within himself. And yet that love wasn't experienced by anyone else. So God shared it by creating out of his infinite love and goodness, created the universe, and at the peak of creation, he made us 
to experience him, to know him, to sense that love, to experience it together with others. And yet something went horribly wrong and we rebelled and we rejected a perfect love. We still do that every day and we serve ourselves. But God was not caught off guard. He would be perfectly fine in himself to judge us for the rebellion and the lack of love that we have done. But he decided to fix our problem instead. The father looked at the son and in agreement with the Holy Spirit, they created a rescue plan. How would a rebellious and unloving people who were created to know him share his love and know it? They asked each other, you can imagine. And they came up with a plan. The son himself will come down, show us what love is, and he'll do it through sacrifice. Look at those verses again. Verse 9. God's love became manifest. It existed. It was there. And it became real when Jesus came Christmas Day on the scene. God sent his only son in the world so we could live through him. And that's not all. John says, in this is love, not that we've loved God. You can never earn his love. You will never, ever be good enough. It's a wonderful, amazing truth to realize I am never going to be loving enough, <laughs> ever. And that's the point. He was. It's not that we have loved God, but he loved us and became the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, if that word's even hard for you to say, it's hard for me to say, it only occurs four times in all of the New Testament. Um, it, but it's a big deal. It means a sacrifice, but not just a sacrifice. It means an anger-absorbing sacrifice. God is angry at the lack of love that we have shown to him and to others. He's angry for our selfishness. The same anger that you and I feel when we see what happened in Connecticut, when we think about that shooter and what he did and how he hurt people, God has that anger towards our lack of love, towards our selfishness. But his is perfect. He sees perfectly our hearts. And so we are rightly judged. But the son, Jesus, absorbed all of that on the cross for us. This is God's love. This was done on the cross. In closing, I just want to say a couple things. We are all prone to think of God's love in terms of our circumstances, aren't we? Um, we tend to think, first and foremost, at least I do, I may not be alone. Uh, if things are going well for me, if my finances are in good order, if my job is looking good, if things are going well with my daughter, my wife, my family, that God, God loves me and he's happy with me. and things, things are good. But if things are going very poorly, financially you're hurting or you can't find, you have frustration with your spouse, we tend to think, where is God? Maybe he doesn't love me. We tend to wonder where God's love is. Surely the people in Connecticut are wondering right now, are tempted to believe God is not loving them. In fact, the very opposite. You hear this expressed on a grand scale in our culture with all sorts of people. You, maybe you have some of these yourself uh, questions in your heart, but how could there be an all-loving God when there's so much injustice and evil in the world? How can that even be possible? 
Why would a God allow, a good, all-loving God, allow things like that to happen? The Apostle John says this. This is where we see his love on the cross. This is love that God saw your greatest problem and took care, took care of it by sending his son to earth on Christmas Day and giving his life on the cross for us. When you wonder if God loves you, you should look at the cross. You should see Jesus giving himself, the one from whom all eternity had perfect love, came down to love you and display his love for you and rescue you. When you wonder if God loves you, John tells us, you should look to the cross. Theologian Kelly Capick says this, Jesus is not the one who convinces God the Father to love us, but rather the Son of God becomes incarnate, comes to earth, becomes a person in light of the Father's eternal and free love towards us. The Father is not at odds with the Son, but rather God the Father is love, and out of his love he sent his Son to die for our sins. Christmas is a wonderful reminder that there's nothing God hasn't done to show his love for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know this love, but we forget it so easily. We need it more. He loves us. And that love never, ever, 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 ever shifts. Because that love's not based on how you and I have done. It's based on what his son did. And so when God looks on us now, he sees his son and his love never shifts for us. It is infinite. That infinite love that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit experience with one another is ours in fullness now. So we can sing songs like, oh, how he loves us. If you're not a follower of Jesus in here, do you see the amazing love God has for you? Do you see there's nothing he hasn't done to move heaven and earth to show you his goodness and his love? Come and trust him today. There's no one like him. So many of us in this world, in closing, are wondering, how can we truly love one another? How can we have a loving world? Uh, how can what the Beatles say is true? All we need is love. How can that be? When we see the stunning love of the Father that he had in Jesus, then we end up loving people. When you see that overflowing, stunning, transforming love, you can't help but want to fight your own selfishness to love as he has loved us. And one day, that God of love will return one day. He is allowing the world to continue in all its beauty and all its ugliness so that more people can know that love before he comes and takes care of it and brings final justice. Um, I want to close before I pray with a quote from um, an article on the tragedy um, on Friday. It was on uh, ChristianityToday.com by a guy named Mark. Galley is one of the editors there, and this is what he says, and I think it's appropriate for uh, us to close on and to remember. We stand aghast at the loss of innocence. Twenty children, ages six and seven, have died today at the hands of a madman with rage who may not have known what he was doing. There's something especially galling about the innocent being killed, like the 1940s French Jewish children boxed up in train cars and shipped, shipped off to Auschwitz at the hands of another man filled with rage. It is a mystery why God allows the innocent to suffer, but he does. 
like the one whose innocence was like no others, one innocent and holy and precious to the Father, so special it is said that they were one, like no one fa other father and son are one, one in essence, theologians tell us. You would have thought that the power and the glory would have stepped in with thunderbolts when the world conspired to kill the innocent one, Jesus. But this God did not do anything then either. And the son did not rage at the cruel injustice and the waste of good life at the hands of evil men. All he could seem to say was a prayer that his murderers, who he said did not know what they were doing, be forgiven. Such an odd and strange pair, this father and son. The one giving up innocence into the hands of evil. The other forgiving evil men as if, well, as if love really is the ultimate reality in the universe. Let me pray. Father, we, um, uh, we, uh, we don't understand so much the horror of unloving things that go on in the world. And if we're honest, God, with ourselves, we realize um, how much we have failed to love as well. But would you help us to see how stunning it is that love is found in your son coming and giving himself fully to us so we could see all our sin forgiven, so we could see what love truly is. May you impress that upon our hearts, your love, this Christmas season and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray.